Such a blessing and a joy to be with everybody today. Hallelujah. See lots of new faces in the house, and that's a blessing. And I'm sure there's lots of people that are watching us from all over the world. Baruch Hashem. Literally all over the world, right? We have uh, faithful members who watch from different places. And one of our online uh, community members watches from Japan each week. Baruch Hashem. Isn't that a blessing? Hallelujah. So I just feel compelled to say this for those of you who are new and visiting for the first time, and we're such an honor to have you here, and people who are watching online maybe for the first time. All of this uh, that you see about you may seem different. It is different, right? It's different to people who are followers of the Mashiach, or maybe those who are interested in learning more about the Mashiach, but it's not different to the Mashiach. That's what I wanted to say. So uh, everything that we do here at Sar Shalom, you just have to trust me. You'll learn more about it as time goes on, but trust me for now. Uh, that this, uh, we, we do what we do because that's, this is what Mashiach did, right? It's how he lived. So uh, the Torah service and the Talit and the, uh, the Hebrew and all that, this is like, uh, this is like old home week for Mashiach, right? Maruk <laughs> Hashem. So let's bless the Lord with, for the Torah and get right into our study of Nitzavim. And may Hashem open up our eyes and give us understanding. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. And may we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are Yodanai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Amen. I want to begin this morning, uh, with, since, it's, since we're in the, in the season of, of Teshuvah, the season of repentance, and we are about to begin... Um, uh, we're about to begin an even more intense season of Teshuvah beginning on uh, Yom Sheni, otherwise known as Monday, which is Rosh Hashanah. Actually, it begins tomorrow night, um, actually. But the 10 days of Shuva, and so uh, we call it the 10 days of, of repentance, the, the Yamim Naraim. So I taught on this on Wednesday night. If you weren't able to see it or weren't able to be here, then you can go back and look at it and, uh, and glean from it. But I want to begin with this story. This is a true story. From, uh, from the book, uh, Elena Le Shabbat. And I want to share this with you because it's such a, a powerful message to us all. <clears throat> there was a man named Mushalam. He was born to a religious family, we say a from family, in New York. As a child, he was a star pupil in, in his class, in his heather, among his friends. And his presence, his parents rather, had enormous nachas from him. They had enormous... Uh, uh, joy, a blessing because of all his learning. Meshulam's spirit, spiritual descent began at age 17, however, when his mother passed away. One day, he informed his father that he was taking a trip to India together with some friends. His father nearly fainted. India, he cried, why on earth? Unbeknownst to his father, Meshulam had already paid for the airline ticket and had made all the arrangements for the trip. There's nothing to discuss, he said with finality. I'm going, and I can't tell you when I'll be back. Meshulam's father was heartbroken, and his anguish over Meshulam's spiritual deterioration compounded the grief he felt over the loss of his wife. She would have, she would have known how to speak to Meshulam and convince him out of this, he thought. Meshulam, he said in a defiant voice, what does a religious, a frum bacher, have to do in India? India is a place of great idolatry. Meshulam looked at his father in his eyes and laughed cynically. Do you think that I'm still religious? He asked. I'm looking to find meaning in life elsewhere. Mm. The father could not believe his ears. His Meshulam had gone completely off the derrick, completely off the path. He had known that Meshulam was wavering, but never he dreamed that Meshulam had deteriorated to this level which is a lesson, by the way, when we start to slip, it's at first it's a little slide, next thing you know, you're down the chute. Right. It's got to be careful, I'm serious, seen it happen. 
Mushalem for this part was unmoved by his father's distress. I hope you'll forgive me, he said rather impassively. The father's face reddened in fury. Forgive you? After everything you, I did for you? After the hinuk that your mother worked so hard to give you? That's your way of saying thank you? From now on, I don't want to have anything to do with you. If you're throwing away everything in life that's important to a Jew, you're no longer my son. I will never forgive you. These were the last words Meshulam heard from his father. Three years passed. Meshulam did whatever he pleased in India. But his trip was marred by the nagging memory of his, his father's words. Since that time, he had tried to call his father dozens of times, but his father did not answer. He sent letters, but no response. One day when Meshulam was traveling through a city in India and shopping at a local market, he met an old friend from New York and that had been in his heather in his class with him. The two enjoyed a warm reunion, enjoyed rather, a warm reunion, and they remissed about old times. And at some point during the conversation, the friend's face took a serious expression, and he said, Mushalam, I'm very sorry about your father. My father, Mushalam, asked in confusion, what happened to him? You mean you don't know that, that your father died of a heart attack just six months after you left? The friend asked in disbelief. They said that he died of a broken heart because you left and came to India. You didn't know? Mushulam felt as though he had been stabbed in the heart. From that time, something changed in Mushulam. He couldn't stop crying. Finally, he decided to travel to Israel to pray. His friends made fun of him, but he ignored them and booked a flight to Israel anyway. <clears throat> so, when he landed, he headed straight for the Kotel to, do, to pray Mariv. On his way, he began to wonder, the Kotel is the Western Wall. On his way, he began to wonder whether he was even worthy of praying at the Kotel after having abandoned Judaism and having caused his father to die of a broken heart. But he went with deep emotion. He approached the weathered stones of the Kotel and, and he placed his, head, his forehead on the stones and his tears blended with the many other tears that had been soaking the Kotel's floor. He cried for his past. He cried for his present. And he cried for his uncertain future. Most of all, he cried for having caused his father such pain. How could he ever find forgiveness for his sins? How could he ever forgive himself? His tears flowed unrelentingly. A person standing near him took, a note, of this, took note of his distress and suggested that he should write something and put it into the kotel, place it between the stones. Mushulam liked the idea, and he wrote a note that came from the depths of his heart. A note like that. That's my hand, by the way, on the, on the stone. He, he wrote a note, and this is what the note said. Father, I'm here in the holy city of Yerushalayim at the kotel. If your soul sees me from on high, I ask you to please forgive me. I did not mean to hurt you. It was only my evil inclination that made me act so foolish. I promise that I will do complete shuva, and from now on I will follow the path that you and my mom taught me. Father, can you forgive me? Your son, Moshulam. A fresh wave of tears cascaded, cascaded down Moshulam's face as he slipped the note into the crack of the coattail, but, but he did feel much better somehow. The note fell to the floor. However, when Mushulam picked it up and tried to put it back in the coattail, it fell again. As much as he tried to get it in to wedge into the stones where he was trying to place it, it kept falling out. Mushulam was deeply distressed by what he saw as heaven's refusal to accept his shuva. Again, his despair swept over him. In a last-ditch effort, he decided to try inserting it into a different place in the coattail, a little bit higher up. So he grabbed a chair and climbed up on the chair and started placing the, the note into the stone. This time, to his relief, the note remained in its place. But another note had been wedged in the same place, and it fell just as Meshulam was placing his own note there. He picked up the note to put it back in the kotel where, the, where it had fallen, and to his shock, he saw the word Meshulam written on it. He took a closer look at it, he realized that the handwriting was familiar. This was the way his father had always written his name. With trembling hands, he opened the note, which was already tattered and yellowing, and these were the words that he read. Ribon Shalom. Master of the world, have pity on Musham bin Rifka, my young son who traveled to India two months ago. Watch over him so that he remain a faithful Jew and forgive him for all of his sins. 
If I could, I would tell him, My Mushalam, I love you, and I forgive you for everything you did to me. It is true that when we parted, I was angry at you, and I said that I would never forgive you. But you should know, my dear son, that I've changed my mind, and I do forgive you. I hope and pray to our Father in heaven that he forgive you as well and draw you back to him and complete teshuva. I hope that when the day comes, you will marry a God-fearing Jewish girl and you will merit to raise holy, pure children to a life of Torah and mitzvot. Your father who loves you dearly, Yaakov ben Sarah. Now the floodgates opened in Mushulam's heart and he cried his heart out like a young child. When he left the Kotel several hours later, he was a complete Baal a master of repentance. Today, he has four children who are following the ways of Torah. It's a true story. You see how Hashem does for us? When we come to Him in, in, in purity, when we come to Him in tshuva, I mean, it's amazing, right? It's no coincidence. How could that be a coincidence? He puts a note in there, and his Abba's note falls out. How could it be coincidence, right? How could it be? It's not coincidence. That picture there, uh, we took a, a, a group, small group to Israel. We were going to make, um, uh, re- we're going to make everybody's prayer and pray and daven and put it into the Western Wall. And I asked everybody to um, please write out a prayer and send it with us. We had a big bag of them. And I called my mom and I said, Mom, you should make a prayer. I should put it in the, in the coattail. So she did. And she had members of uh, her office at work also make little prayers and put them into the, into the, into the wall. My, my mom, because she's very administrative like this, she decided to put everybody's name, write it on the outside of the prayer, right? <laughs> so I took the bag, and I reached in there and got prayers out and handed it to everybody, and we took pictures, and we were diving over them before we went. I ended up with two prayers, and in my hand, which is right there, was my mom's prayer. <laughs> Why does Hashem do that? Because he loves us, right? Because he cares about us. Because, because he wants us to take note. He wants, us to, he wants to, us to know that he is listening to us. So this story, you should know, it's about Mushulam and his teshuva. But you should know from that story that Hashem listens to your teshuva. He listens to your prayer. He listens to your heart. And the gates of shuva are the gates of, of, of heaven rather, are never closed to uh, prayers that are offered with tears. Which is why I say that if you have not prayed with tears, you should ask God to open up your eyes that you should pray with tears. Pray with sincerity. Because tears are the anguish of the soul. It's what it's a, it's some, say, some of the sages say that the tears are like the mikvah of the soul. That this is what purifies. And, and Hashem collects those tears as it even teaches us when we read the book of Revelation. It talks about that. He collects he collects our prayers. He collects, he collects our tears and pours them back on us. Parashat Netzivim, which is from the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devarim, beginning in, in chapter 29, is an amazing parasha. And as Raquel said last night at the Shabbos table, that it's an amazing parasha given the fact that Rosh Hashanah is just a few hours away. Because it's all about a renewed covenant. This parashah is all about a renewed covenant. It's, it's, it's our invitation to receive a new covenant with Hashem. That's what Rosh Hashanah is all about. That's what the new year is all about. The new year in the secular world, no matter what country you go to, the new year is all about revelry, right? It's about drinks, it's about party, it's about hats, you know, blow the thing, you know, like that kind of stuff, right? It's all about that, you know, but in God's economy, in His, in His Kedusha, His holiness, the new year is about reestablishing a relationship with the Creator. It's about reconciling the year, taking, taking an uh, assessment. And I don't know if there's anybody so brazen that they would stand up before God on Rosh Hashanah and most especially on Yom Kippur and say, oh yeah, my, my year is pretty good. I did pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, hey, my mitzvah keeping, hey, it's not bad. Yeah. I don't think anybody, I think anybody take an honest look at your life, no matter what your rank is, so to speak, whether you're rabbi, zakin, Hazan, anybody, you know, no matter who you are, 
You look up and say, what are, what are my good deeds compared to you? They're like filthy rags. That's the attitude we should have. King David, the sages said about King David, that um, talking about the fact that on, on um, Yom Kippur, that God opens up his books. He opens up the book of life, the book of death, and there's a book of what's called the intermediaries, or the, the in-between. Basically not sure if you're a book of death or book of life yet. Decision hasn't been made yet. By the way, just as a side note, the whole concept of, of the, your name written in the book of life is not f- from Christianity. It doesn't derive from that. It actually comes from Judaism. Way before Mashiach was ever came to the earth, way before that, that concept of being written in the book of life. Incidentally, every letter, well, the book of life is the Torah, by the way. So when it talks about your name written in the book of life, it literally is talking about your name written in the Torah scroll. Every letter in the Torah scroll represents a Jewish soul. You wonder if you're if a Jewish person might wonder, where's my name in the Torah? Well, my, my name begins with a mem. So everywhere mem's written, there's Mordecai, right? Thank God. Not because I'm good, but because of Mashiach. But every, every letter represents a Jewish soul. So the question is, the sages asked, Rabbi Akiva asked this because he was a convert. He said, what about the converts? What about them? Where are they written? And the sages' response was, that's easy. Every letter in the Torah scroll has a little crown on it, right? And that little crown, by the way, has a little line. Those little lines are, are called in Hebrew thorns. So literally, in the Torah scroll, every letter has a crown of thorns on it. I'm not making that up. And, there, and the sages said that the, the, those who convert, those who come into the covenant, they weren't born Jewish, but they came. They were called and they came. They are written in the Torah scroll vis-a-vis the crowns. Specifically, the crown of thorns that are on the letter. So if Mashiach is the entire Torah, which he is, he's the Aleph Tav, he's the entire Torah, what the, what the Romans did not know, because they were mocking him, making fun of him, it was the Romans who put the crown of thorn on his head, and they took this staff, they put it in his hand, and they put a, a, a purple robe on him, and they mocked him, they kneeled down and said, oh, hail the king, and then they took this rod from him, and they hit him over the side of the head, so they knocked the crown of thorns more into his head, and blood began to run down, you can imagine, right? They did all this, they're making fun of him, what they did not know is they're fulfilling the mitzvah that the Torah should have a crown of thorns on it, that they should be grafted in. So when it talks about our names written in the book of life, listen, can I just tell you something? I don't really care if I'm a letter or a crown. Someone says, oh, I wish I, who cares? I don't care, right? All I want to know is I'm in the book. I can be a footnote in the book. I don't care. Baruch Hashem. It says in Parashat Nitzavim in, in uh, the 29th chapter and the 28th verse, <clears throat> the hidden sins are for Adonai, our God, but the revealed sins are for us and our children forever to carry out all the words of, of this Torah. I want to begin by looking at this Parashat, gleaning some things from it. I want to begin here because this is a very important point that's being made here. The sages talk extensively about it. If you have your Humash, this is on page 1091. I'm going to read the commentary there. Ramban talks about this as well. He says it a bit more eloquently, but it's basically the same thing. People often ask, because they've been taught incorrectly, and a lot of what we do here at Sar Shlom is with God's help, we bring clarity to such things as I'm about to talk about. But it's been taught that back in the quote-unquote Old Testament, that Jews were under the law. And, and, and Mashiach had to come and bring us under grace, right? That grace didn't exist almost until Mashiach came. Of course, that's crazy, because uh, if there wasn't such thing as grace, then Adam and Eve would have never made it out of the garden, right? And we wouldn't be here. So the very fact that we exist 
indicates that there's grace. Someone asked me one time, someone asked me many times, but they might ask me again, are you under the law? And my answer to that question is very proudly and very gratefully, absolutely. Now, they don't know what they're asking, and so that's a shock effect when I say that because they're expecting me to say, no, 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 no. But the answer is yes, 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 and thank God. Okay? What is the law? The law is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Notice I said Bible. So the law, the law of Moses, the law of God, the Mosaic law, is the Word of God. It is the divine scripture. It's God's holy word, right? It is the first five books of the Bible, but it also encompasses the entirety of the Bible. So when somebody asks me, are you under the law? What I hear them saying is, are you under the scripture of God? Are you under his divine word? And my answer is, absolutely, 100%. Now what they don't realize is that what they're saying, they've been taught that under the law means under the law of Moses. But in actuality, what the apostle meant was under the law of the sinful nature, under the law of sin and death, right? Because the word of God is not sin and death. And if you think that it is, please see as they can immediately follow in this service, right? The word of God is not sin and death. Psalms is also part of Torah. It's not sin and death, right? Proverbs is a part of Torah. In fact, the word for wisdom in Hebrew is a synonym to Torah. Wisdom is Torah. And so when we read the book of Proverbs, every time it says wisdom, 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 that's Torah, 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 Torah. Not to be confused with the code that bombed Pearl Harbor, but, <laughs> but it bombs the Yetzirah, right? So <laughs> we have, we have to, We have to understand this reality. So we're under the Torah. So grace does exist. And this is what this passage is talking. This is what this verse is talking about. The hidden sins of Roshim. This is what the comment says. And Ramban brings it down also from the Talmud. The hidden sins of Roshim, lest Israel retort that it cannot be held responsible for sinners whom it has no knowledge. Moses assures the nation that hidden sins are the province of God alone, and he holds no one responsible but the sinner themselves. But everyone is obligated to safeguard the integrity of Israel against openly committing sins. Ramban adds that the verse refers also to sins that are hidden from the perpetrator himself. For it often happens that people sin out of ignorance of the law or the facts of a situation. Such sins belong to God in the sense that he does not hold them against the sinner. In other words, like we've often said here at Sar Shalom, people ask me all the time, what about my cousin Vinny who doesn't know about Torah and he loves God and he follows, uh, you know, Messiah. He doesn't know what he doesn't know. And my answer to that is God. Hey, listen, God's got that. It's okay. What the sages are talking about here is that God has grace, that he's not going to hold us accountable for something that we don't know, right? There's a caveat to that. That we are responsible to seek it out. So there's a level of responsibility if we don't seek something out. But if you honestly don't know, then Hashem's not going to hold you accountable to that. You know what? Because that would not be a just judge. That would not be a just judge to do that. So the, the hidden sins. Also, it says here in the comments, what I think is really nice, Rashi comments, bringing down the uh, idea from Psalm 87, verse 6, this verse also alludes to the fate of Jews who had become so assimilated among other peoples that their Jewish origins have been completely forgotten. When the final redemption comes, these hidden ones, known only to God, will be reunited with the rest of the nation and be restored to the status of their forefathers. We're seeing this come to pass on our own time, where... People come to us, and Rebetzin is really good about this. I'm almost Hashem has got, given her like a, a gift, like to know. And people sometimes come to the shul, and they'll be talking and talking. I don't know why I'm here. I just drawn here. It's amazing. I know what's going on. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know anything about anything. And Rebetzin will look at them and say, oh, it's because you're Jewish. <laughs> and they're like, no, no, I'm Irish. <laughs> or whatever, you know. And she's like, oh, Okay. Well, 
you are a Jew, but just think about it. You know? and, then, and then something will happen, like time will go by, the person will start to investigate. Next thing you know, it finds out that their great-great-great-grandfather was a big rabbi in Russia or something like that. This has happened here. It's happened here many times, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, they come back to her and they're like, it's amazing. I found out that I actually way back, I have a little bit of Ashkenazi or whatever. And she's like, oh, well, I knew that. Yeah. <laughs> Mazel tov. <laughs> Does it mean that you have to be Jewish? No, of course not. Doesn't mean that. But the point is, is that Hashem is doing this in our time where he's bringing people awaken and they don't even know. And, and we've, we talked about this amongst the guys not too long ago that that maybe this was the whole plan of Hashem dispersing the ten tribes, that they should go out into the world and through their sin of taking non-Jewish wives and non-Jewish husbands turns into a merit because now you have millions of people, millions of people. You know, just in Jamaica alone, Jamaica, people don't realize this. I did not realize it until we started going there. Big, big Jewish heritage in Jamaica. When, uh, when the Inquisition happened, everybody left Spain. Uh, Columbus was Jewish. A lot of his officers were Jewish on those, those three, three boats. And they were actually looking for a safe haven. The New World, yes, but really looking for a safe haven for Jews. This is historical fact, not making this up. And so they end up, and, and Jamaica was given to Columbus. The king of Spain gave it to Columbus. And so a lot of Jews went to Jamaica from from, from Europe went there and then spread out to the rest of the Caribbean. The Caribbean is actually like the epicenter of, of the Jewish uh, coming to the Western Hemisphere. It's true. It's true. There were, there were, at one time, there were 12 Jewish cemeteries in Jamaica. There were, at one time, four synagogues in Jamaica. And they estimate, this is, his, this is from the book, there's a book out there called The Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> it's true. Because Port Royal was the captain uh, of the... Uh, the capital of all the piracy, and that was in Jamaica. We stayed there once, twice, <laughs> ten times. But anyway, <laughs> um, the point being is that they estimate that there are some 400,000 Jamaicans that have Jewish blood, and they don't even know it. That's just a, a rough estimate. Isn't that interesting? Just 400,000 in Jamaica alone that are Jews. One time, uh, one of the wives of the pastors there was asking Rebetzine, she's like, you know, I don't know if I'm Jewish or not. And she's like, uh, Rebetzine's like, okay, so I don't know, who knows, you could be. She's like, what's your, what's your maiden name? She's like, it's Cohen. <laughs> and she was completely clueless. Like, had, like, and Rebetzine just looked at her and was like... <laughs> and she's like, what, that means something? <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? What is going on here in this book is the, the sages talk about that this is, the re this is a renewal of the covenant. Rambon brings down, in chapter 30, it says, It will be that when all these things come upon you. Rambon is talking about that this section of Torah is talking about the final redemption. There were, or there will be, three total redemptions that Israel will face. Two we've already faced. We're waiting on the third. The first redemption was the redemption from Egypt. The second redemption was the redemption of Babylon. Why? Before we, we went to Babylon, all the number, excuse me, all the months of the year were just numbers. It was the first month, second month, third month, so on. After Babylon, the, the, uh, the, the, the months all of a sudden have names, but they're Babylonian names. And some people, because they don't know, they, they, they just don't know what they don't know, they think we shouldn't call the names by these, these pagan names. It's not right. But in fact, the scripture talks about that there will come a time when you will no longer remember the exile from Egypt, but you will remember the exile from Babylon. And one of the ways that we remember the exile from Babylon is the fact that our months are called by Babylonian names. And the very fact that that some of the names anyway are pagan in nature helps us to know that there's a third and final redemption that's coming. That we still in, we're still a man in need of a savior. That I'm just Where's Hillel when I need him? When, 
sense, right? So the first, the second redemption is Babylon. The third redemption is Rome. The third redemption is Rome. If you read the, the Midrash, the Talmud, virtually everything, the sages all agree that the Mashiach is located right now today at the gates of Rome, binding himself with bandages because he's the leper messiah calling upon himself all the sins and all the disease of israel this is jewish literature i'm talking about he's at the gates of rome why is he at the gates of rome to a certain extent he's being held captive this is why today that the that yeshua is known and has been known for all these centuries as jesus christ and he's the roman the roman messiah right that he's his headquarters, allegedly, is in the Vatican in Rome. And everything about him is goy in nature. He, he, he eats and lives like a Gentile and so on. And this is what Israel sees. This is, this is the story of Joseph and his brothers. All they see is an Egyptian king, and they can't, this guy can't be the savior of Israel. He's the he's son of Pharaoh. I mean, come on, you know? And then they find out later because he tells them that, in fact, I am your brother. That comes later. So what you're seeing now is that followers of the Mashiach, slowly but surely, little by little, are starting to realize that in fact, JC is not really the correct figure, that it's Yeshua, that the Mashiach is not blonde hair and blue eyes and walks around like this, but in fact, he wraps feeling, he, he wears uh, the tallit, that he davens, that he speaks Hebrew, that he's though he wasn't just born in Israel, he actually is a Jew. More and more this is happening. And listen, friends, it's happening, and it's some of it's happening because thank God, you know, you guys are talking to people, but a lot of times people just show up and say, I don't even know why I'm here, but I'm here. Is it okay for me to come in? You know how many people email us from time to time and say, I'm not Jewish, is it okay for me to come? Like, ha ha, yes. <laughs> right? We want to put a big old sign out front. In fact, we did. Yeah. It said, come. <laughs> But what's also equally interesting is that as in as much as there is a big revival right now, a big tent revival, a big sukkah revival. That's what we need. Where's Mikhail? We need a big sukkah revival. Uh, hey, we need a big sukkah revival. People are coming to the big sukkah, the fallen tent, the fallen sukkah of David. They're coming back to that. But in as much as that's happening, the enemy is hard at work trying to bring Christians back to Rome. It's, it's real. Trying to bring them back to Rome. Look today at the Christian scene and you'll find that more and more churches are starting to come back to the more Catholic level of observance. You're starting to see Monday, Thursday. You're starting to see more things like that where people are starting to come. I know, I know of a... Uh, uh, a, a Christian pastor, Protestant pastor, that whenever he goes on vacation, that he, he goes to a, a, a Catholic monastery and spends like a week or something like that. So I'm just saying that this is, so you say, the question is, what's going on? Listen, the enemy is hard trying to bring people back to Rome. Whereas Hashem is, by his spirit, is bringing people back to Jerusalem. Yeah. Right? That's like Mikhail's song today coming back to Jerusalem. This is, this is what's been prophesied. Listen, Hashem prophesied this in Isaiah 2, 3, that the nations of the world would come to Jerusalem and say, let us go to the God of Jacob. Let's walk in your paths. And the enemy knows that. And so he's going to do everything he can to influence people. No, no, don't, don't listen to that. Come over here. Come back, to, come back to, to Rome. Come back to Rome. Come back to Rome. Come back to Rome. I'm telling you, it's real. So the third redemption is going to be, is going to be, the, the, the uh, moving away from Rome. And of course, the third redemption will be the final redemption. Rambam says, I've already mentioned in Leviticus 26, 16, in my comment there, that this section re refers to events that are still in the future. For all of its matters have not yet, yet occurred at all, but they are destined to occur. And it says in verse 2, And you will return unto Hashem your God, and He will listen to your voice according to everything that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. And it, Ramban says, And the meaning of, And you will return unto Hashem your God and listen to His voice according to everything that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and all your soul. 
This is that you will return to Hashem with all your heart and all your soul, and you will accept upon yourself and your children for future generations to act in accordance with everything that I'm commanding you here today. This is as the people did at the time of the second redemption when they formally accepted upon themselves to follow God's commandments as it is written, the remainder of the people entered into a curse and an oath to follow God's Torah, which was given through the hand of Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and fulfill all the commandments of Adonai our God and his judgments and his decrees from Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 30. Now, we're about to get into Rosh Hashanah, so this is, becomes really important to us. The question on the table is, what's he talking about? The fact of the matter is, here's the first redemption. The first redemption is... We were bound as slaves, by the way, in, in Egypt. And by the way, we enslaved ourselves in Egypt. We were not minding our own business, churning butter in the Holy Land. And the Egyptian army came and snatched us up and drug us, kicking and screaming, to Egypt. That's not how it played out. We went to Egypt on our own free will. And when our father, Jacob, died, we were supposed to come back to the Holy Land. But, you know, Egypt, they had, the, they had the strip, they had the club, right? They had the fancy garments and all that kind of stuff, right? What's that? Fancy car. Oh, can't they have the naftalis? No, I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, it was wonderful. And there was leagues. And, oh, and they had all the gods. No, we were all idolaters in Egypt. You know that, right? I've talked about this so many times, but we were all idolaters. Everybody was an idolater in Egypt. Jews too. Everybody was enjoying it. And what happened, the sages say that the land took hold of us. We enslaved ourselves. Because we, we went and buried our father, and then we all huddled up and said, all right, well, famine's over. Joseph, we know you've got to go back because you're still at the gates of Rome, but... What do y'all want to do? Hey, let's go back to Egypt. They didn't have to go back. They wanted to go back. So what happened? Then a new king showed up, and then he went ahead and closed the shackles on us. So Hashem had to come and set us free. How did he ultimately do it? By his own strong arm and mighty hand, ultimately through the blood of the Lamb. We left Egypt because God set us free. We went to the Red Sea which everybody agrees, even the apostles, that that was a mikvah, that was a baptism. Then from there, our next stop after mikvah, after conversion, because remember, everybody had to convert. We were all idolaters. After conversion, our very next stop on the plan was to receive the Torah. And we all said, we will do and we will hear. right? We will do and we will hear. We all swore an oath that whatever God wanted us to do, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. I am free indeed. He calls me friend. Right? We all swore, because he set me free, right? Free at last. We're there we are. We're going to do everything that you tell me to do. And God said, okay. And, and Moses said, I'll be right back as I go find out everything he wants us to do. And we said, go get it. <laughs> and as soon as he went up there, we're like, bring out the calf. Wow. <laughs> so fast forward to the second redemption. We do the same thing. Hashem sends prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And they risk their life. We kill some of them. And every one of their messages, this is, this is from God, return to the Torah. Return to my way of life. Every prophet risked their life to, say, to give us that message. Yeshua comes along and says, turn from the Torah. Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, that every single prophet in Shemayim, when they hear that stuff, they go, well, God, why didn't you tell us to tell them that? Right. I died for telling them to turn back to your Torah. You send your only begotten son. He says, turn away from the Torah. I mean, come. Right, Micah? Nice. Haggai, Haggai, Haggai. What, what, what? Right? No. Mashiach, because see, the parable was, 
Come on, see, this is where logic kicks in. It's real simple. Here's the parable that Yeshua gave. There are some tenants. I'm paraphrased. This is, this is the Rabbi Griffin, Texas version. I had some, some tenants on my farm, and they were misbehaving. So I sent my servants, prophets, to tell them to get their act together. They killed my servants, my prophets, who had the message, get in line. So I thought to myself, if I send my son, the king of Israel, then they will recognize his authority and they'll get in line. But in fact, when they saw the king coming, they said to themselves, Behold, the king's son is coming, the owner's son is coming. If we kill him, then we will be able to take the farm over. The priests, the Sadducees, and some of the teachers of the law saw Yeshua coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and they said, we got to kill him lest the whole world go after him. In other words, if we kill him, we'll get all the glory. If we kill him, the people will turn to us. If we kill the, the son of the owner, we'll be able to take over the land. So it says, Yeshua given the parable said, so I sent my son and they killed him. And he asked, Yeshua said, what do you think will become of those tenants? And the teacher's law said that the, the owner's going to come and he's going he's to wipe them out. And he said, exactly. He did not say, I'm going to send my son who's going to have a completely different message and said, everything y'all doing is okay. Just ask, say you're sorry about it and keep doing it. That's confusing, isn't it? It makes far more sense that when you send messengers, they all have the same message. Right? Say yes, even if you don't believe me, say yes. So I know that you're in your right mind. Okay? Now, now, you, now listen, if you want to continue to believe the sky is red, that is your choice, but you've got to admit it's blue. Now, you can say it's red because you want to. But All right, so... Nehemiah chapter 8. So what happened in Babylon? After Babylon, we went to Babylon because all the prophets were telling us to turn back for the Torah, and we didn't do it. And we got exiled to Babylon. And while we were going to Babylon, if you read the book of Jeremiah, book of, book of Lamentations, all the people are weeping on their way to Babylon. And, and this is where Jeremiah gets the name, the, the weeping prophet, because he starts to weep, and he says, if y'all would have just prayed like this for one hour... This could have all been avoided. I preached for you my entire life and not one of you made tshuva. Now you're on your way to exile and you're weeping. And I just, I would have given anything if you'd have just weep like this on Rosh Hashanah. I would have given anything if you'd reap like this on Yom Kippur. But you can't be on your way to Gehenna and weep. And so... They come back after 70 years, and guess what? Because God is consistent. God is consistent. God is consistent. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. See, this, I, ho I hope y'all are seeing that what we're about to step into here in just a few hours is consistency. God wants us to act just like we're about to read here in a second. When we got delivered the first exile, Torah, we're about to read, when we came back from Babylon, first thing that happened, God said, here's my Torah. Don't do this again. This is what happened. Book of Nehemiah. Turn to the book of Nehemiah, please. Chapter 8. Book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, please. They say that Nehemiah was an officiant in the court of Persia, and that while he was an official there, it was Xerxes, Hahasuerus, who was on the throne. And guess who was sitting next to him? <laughs> Esther. So, anyway, Nehemiah is back in the Holy Land now. And he and Ezra, Nehemiah and Ezra at one time were, was one book. It says, then all the peoples gathered together as one man. Say one man gather together as one man. When we stand up on Yom Kippur to confess our sins, we're going to confess it together as one people, right? As one man, they stood at the plaza before the water gate. I love that, the water gate. Oh. 
man. And they asked Ezra the scholar, the scholar to bring the scroll of the Torah which Moses had written by God's hand. So Ezra the Kohen brought the Torah before the congregation, men and women, and all those who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. The first day of the seventh month is the first of Tishri. It's Rosh Hashanah. This is, ha- this is happening on Rosh Hashanah right here. He read from it before the plaza as before the water gate from the first light until midday in front of the common men and women and those who understood and the ears of all the people were attentive to the Torah scroll. Ezra the scholar stood on a wooden tower that they had made for the purpose. Next to him stood Mattathai as well as Shema, Ananai, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right and on his left, Pedai, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mushalem. Did y'all catch that name? Yeah. Mushalem. Yeah. From my story, right? Yeah. Ezra opened the scroll before the eyes of the people, for he was above all the people when he opened it, because he was on a platform. And all the people stood silent. Ezra blessed Hashem, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. Why, why did he bless God? Because you're supposed to say a blessing before you read the Torah. Midrash Rabbah says that when we say the blessing before Torah reading, we're actually blessing ourselves. And God says, when you bless yourself because you bless the Torah, you draw near to me because I am the Torah. That's what it says in the Midrash Rabbah. Yeah. So it says here, continuing on, Ezra blessed Hashem, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with their hands upraised. Then they stood, they bowed and prostrated themselves before Hashem, faces to the ground. Yeshua, Bani, Shabaya, Yamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodaya, Masaiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jozadab, Hanan, Pelai, and the Levites, listen to this, help the people understand the Torah. It wasn't every man for himself trying to figure out for himself, interpreting for itself. The Levites helped the people learn Torah. What's it called? Commentaries, sources. Oral Torah, they help the people understand. This is what it means when it says to keep the Sabbath. This is how we do that. Amen. It wasn't left up to each and every. Y'all go out and we want total chaos. Everybody figure out what that looks like for the, on their own. <laughs> it says to uh, slaughter the calf like I showed you. Only problem is it doesn't, it's not written anywhere. Everybody go make it up on your own. Do it however you want. Because we want total disorder in the community. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're after. Because our God is a God of chaos. Right? Every, our God is a God of everybody making it up on their own. Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes. That's what our God is. That's the exact opposite, right? Our God is a God of order. Our God is a God of unity. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers together, dwell together in unity, right? Everybody joins a football team. You ever watch football? I don't watch it anymore, but... You ever watch a football game and everybody's out on the field on, a, on, on the, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers are out there? Every single one of them, every, every single one of them wearing a different uniform. The other team that they're playing, the Cowboys, <laughs> the Cowboys are all wearing a different uniform. And whenever the coach says, all right, all right, guys, listen up, listen up, blue 52, blue 52, blue 52, right. Everybody gets up there and everybody's doing their own playbook. <laughs> Quarterback says, hey, blue 52, blue 52. That's, that's, that's the playbook of man. Nah. I'm blue, blue 47. You, who's with me? No, I'm blue 27. No, I'm blue 17. No, I'm not even playing this down. <laughs> right? The Cowboys over there, and the coach said, zone defense. They said, no, 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 I'm on blitz. <laughs> I said, no, 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 no. I'm on, I'm on press four, press, press four, press play, press play. No, no, I ain't doing that. What would happen? It'd be fun to watch, but it'd be total train wreck. <laughs> right? This is why you have to have the Levites helping people understand the Torah. See, this is what I love about intelligence. 
You don't have to be a brilliant scholar. You just have to use your brain. So anyway, and read the scripture. While the people stood in their place, they read the scroll in God's Torah clearly with the the application of wisdom, and they helped the people understand the reading. Then Nehemiah, who is Hatashartaf, who's like a a dignitary, as well as Ezra the Cohen, the, the scholar and the Levites were helping people understand. They said this three times, helping people understand. You understand? Okay. They said to all the people, Today is sacred to Hashem your God. Do not mourn and do not weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of Torah. And he said to them, Go eat rich food and drink sweet beverages and send portions to those who have nothing prepared. For today is sacred to our Lord. Do not be sad. The enjoyment of Adonai is your strength. Why? Because it's Rosh Hashanah. Eat, eat sweet foods and have delicacies. And if there's somebody who says, I don't have anything to eat, you come to my house. Yeah. Just call ahead. <laughs> and the Levites quieted all the people saying, be silent for this day is sacred. Do not be sad. So all the people went out to eat and drink and send portions to the needy and to engage in great rejoicing for they had understood the matters of which they had been informed for them. And then in verse 13, it starts talking about, I won't, for the sake of time, we won't read it, but it says in verse 13, they started, they, all of a sudden they found out, hey, wait a minute, we're supposed to have Sukkot. And it says they went out afterwards and they started getting all the stuff for the lulavs. They're like, hey, wait, we're supposed to do this Sukkot thing. See, isn't this exciting? When God brings his people back, they start going into the Torah. This is exactly what God wanted them to do. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Babylon. And now I need you to figure out what I want you to do. And so I want you to understand this. These are Jews who've been in Babylon and they've just now learning about Sukkot. And so there's people here today, this morning, who says, I don't have any idea what Rosh Hashanah is all about. Maybe you're here this morning and you think to yourself, I wasn't even, I didn't even know that Monday was Rosh Hashanah. I have no idea what to do. And I would say to you, welcome to the family. Because we all stood before Sinai at one time and we heard about Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot and we all went, okay, all right. We stood before, before Nehemiah and Ezra on Rosh Hashanah and they said, hey, today's Rosh Hashanah. We're like, I didn't even know. He's like, it's all right. It's okay, it's good. Now you know, that's the whole point. See, the most important thing is to begin. He didn't say he was going to go collect people who are walking the path. He said, I'm going to collect people who are going to walk the path. That's the whole thing. Whew, man. Got to hurry up here. Just a couple things real fast. I just want to share a couple things. I have a lot more notes than I have time. Always, but anyway. In, verse, in chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, it says this. For this mitzvah that I command you today is not too difficult. Say not too difficult. We're correct. We're going to make correction right now about a, I don't want to say lie because that's really heavy handed sounding. So let's call it a lie. <laughs> it's a misnomer. Okay, thank you, honey. It's a misnomer. I don't want to speak Lashon Hara. I just want to try to, you know, and that is that, that the reason Mashiach had to come and deliver us from the law is because nobody could keep it. Do you know why there's so many people in jail? It's because they couldn't help it. All those people in jail, they just could not, they couldn't follow the law on the books. That's why they're there. Why aren't we there? No, I'm serious. There's people in there for burglary and robbery and drugs and murder, rape, all kind of stuff in there. They broke the law. If we follow religious theology we would have to say they're not guilty. They all need to be let go because the law is just too hard for them to follow. Right? And, and I would say that if that's the case, then it is completely unjustified for any judge to find anybody guilty of anything. Right? So we're calling God an unjust judge because he gives us a law that we cannot follow and he sends us to hell for it. How's that 
even make sense? No, it's not. And the deal is, is that God tells us. See, he says in his own law, Deuteronomy is part of the law, he says it is not too difficult for you to do. Hashem destroys that argument. When we stand up, when our defense attorney stands up and says, the reason I wasn't able to follow your Holy Torah is because nobody can follow your Holy Torah. And the prosecutor is going to stand up and say, um, Your Honor, I object. For it says in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, For this mitzvah that I command you today is not too difficult for you to do. And the judge is going to say, Sustain. So there's that. So let's continue. For you, nor is it too far away for you, not far off from you. It is not in the heavens that who should say who will go up for us to get it. And it's and, and, and has to hear it, for, uh, hear it for us, nor is it across the sea that you should say who will cross over for us to the other side of the sea and get it for us. And by the way, I'm just going to tie this together. Man, this, so it's, it's not on the other side of the sea to say who's going to get it for us. So the, the disciples are in a boat and they're in the middle of the sea and the, the waves are bu- buffeting them. Man, I, they can't make any headway. They're trying their desperately to get to the other side of the sea the Sea of Galilee, and they can't get it. They're literally paddling or whatever and not moving. If you've ever, I've been in that situation before. You're literally wearing yourself out, and you're not, your boat has not moved an inch. All of a sudden, there comes Yeshua walking on the water. The whole thing happens where he says, come out to me, and Peter does, and he sings, and he picks him up, and it says, that the end of that story was, and when Yeshua got inside the boat, they were instantly on the other side. See, you don't have to say, where is it? It's not across the sea. Who's going to get it? Why? Why? Because when the Torah gets in your boat, you're able to cross the sea. You're already there. So when, and by the way, the sages say that when Hashem sees us making Teshuvah, when he sees us trying to keep his Torah, he helps us keep his Torah. He helps us, right? Ramban says that this mitzvah could be referring also to Teshuvah, that Teshuvah, confession, regret, resolving not to, uh, not to commit the sin again. That's not too hard for you either. That's not too hard for you either. Rabbi Hanina said that when the Torah was given to us, this is in the Midrash Rabbah 8.6, it says when the Midrash, or excuse me, when the Torah was given to us, that the tools, the quote, tools of the trade were also given to us. Humility, righteousness, and uprightness. Midrash Rabbah Nitzavim 8, 1 is talking about that one of the tools of the trade there is prayer. And that the reason prayer is such a tool is because that when we draw near to God in prayer, He draws near, near, near to us and that the word prayer itself denotes the connection. It, it denotes actually cleaving to God. Cleaving to God. And in case anybody's wondering... One more thing, one more thing I want to dispel before we, as we're concluding here. In, in Tractate Sota 35a, this is a bit of an aside, but there's an idea out there that all this Torah stuff is good unless you're for Jews, but not for non-Jews. God doesn't expect non-Jews to keep the Torah. No, it, the repentance is for non-Jews for, as well. And by the way, they're no longer non-Jews once they come into the kingdom, but that's another topic. In the Tractate Sota 35b, it's talking about the fact that when the Israelites came into the Holy Land, they set up pillars, and they wrote the entire Torah on the pillars, and then they plastered the pillars over. And those were the, those were the mezuzahs of the Holy Land. You know, the Torah on a pole. But I'm just saying. So it says here, the rabbis taught in Abraisha, an illegal work. How did Israel inscribe the Torah on the altar of Mount Evil? Rabbi Yehuda says they inscribed it directly on the stones, as it says, and you shall inscribe it on the stones, all the words of this Torah. And afterwards, they coated the stones with plaster. Only after the Torah was written on the stones did they apply the plaster coating. Rabbi Shimon said to him, according to your words, how did the nations of that time learn Torah? While the, inscrip- while the inscription was covered. In other words, it's insinuated, inferred, implied that the nations are supposed to learn Torah. So the question is, how do they learn Torah if it's covered up? Rabbi Yehuda replied, The Holy One, blessed be He, endowed the nations with extra measure of insight, and they sent their scribes 
who peeled off the plaster and carried away copies of the inscription. And on account of this matter, the nation's decree was sealed to, that they should descend to the pit of Gehenna. Why? For having had access to the Torah, they should have learned it, yet they did not learn it. Since Moses, it says in the footnote, since Moses commanded the Torah be inscribed on the stone, it says, it uses the word be'er hetev, meaning well clarified, which the Beresha interprets to mean in all 70 languages. In other words, they wrote the Torah on that, that pole, on that stone, in all 70 languages. Why? Because God wanted it to get into the hands of the nations. The purpose of Israel was to be the ones who delivered the Torah to the people. The purpose of Israel is to stand on the platform like Ezra and Nehemiah and read the Torah to the people and let them say, we will do and we will hear. The good news is, is that the gates of Teshuvah are always open and that gate opens wide on Sunday night called Rosh Hashanah. Let's do like Nehemiah and the people did on Rosh Hashanah. Let's get glad. Let's, let's allow some, some tears of joy to pass down our face and say, God, thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for forgiving us. Father, we don't know what we're doing, but, but like a maidservant looks to her maiden, we look to you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. What do we know? What do we know? Baruch Hashem.